All right. Good evening. Thank you. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to John chapter 4. We're finishing our Truth Shaped series tonight. Uh, this will be the last uh, sermon in this series, and then next week we're going to start the book of James. So we're going to be studying through James together, which is very exciting for me. It's much easier as a preacher to prepare uh, when I'm in the same book for a while, and we can just kind of go in order, so that'll be fun to be back doing that again. Uh, tonight we're calling the series Truth-Shaped Sexuality. So we'll be in John chapter 4, which is found on page 888 in the Black Bibles that you'll find under the chairs nearby. Um, just want to make you aware of some of the resources that we have in the hallway. We've got some books that we were putting out there. There's two in particular that I want to recommend to you. One is by Kevin DeYoung called What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality? This is a very helpful book just explaining the basic teaching of the scriptures on homosexuality. Um, it's very clear, very succinct, uh, pretty thorough, covering all the main passages. There's another book here called Engendered, God's Gift of Gender Difference in Relationship. Um, this one's a little more advanced. Uh, it's a little harder to follow, but I have uh, greatly enjoyed this book. I found it very helpful. Um, he really zeroes in on gender as a calling that God gives us. Um, we often get wrapped up uh, and confused over the idea of identity, right? None of us in our identity feel like we're everything we should be. And so when it comes to gender, that can be very confusing. Am I who I should be? Am I fully this gender or that gender? Or am I like I want to be or like someone else wants me to be? And he talks about biblically gender is a calling. It's something that God asks of us. Um, so it's very helpful. Again, kind of a systematic theology of gender. So these two are available in the hallway. Um, this one also is very helpful because he mixes in interviews with folks that have formerly been in homosexual relationships that are now in heterosexual relationships. And so he kind of applies um, insights, things that they've learned as they've sought to be obedient to the Lord in their relationships. So that's helpful as well. These other books... Um, kind of have two categories. These two are just on marriage and family in the Bible, and these are more kind of academic works. And we're not selling these, but these are up here up front if you want to flip through them. Uh, and then these three books are growing in your faith type books I want to recommend uh, for those of you that may be struggling with issues of sexuality or really just struggling with anything. These are non-specific, um, not just about sexuality, but just about growth and struggle in the Christian life. We all struggle as Christians. We all struggle to obey we all struggle to resist temptation in our life. Uh, so these are three of my favorites. Uh, this one's called Redemption. It's really helpful. Uh, it uses the Exodus as kind of a paradigm, comparing the Exodus being set free from slavery uh, in the Old Testament and compares that to what we have in the Gospel and uh, gives a lot of helpful stories of real lives. Uh, and then this one's called How People Change by Lane and Tripp. It's also very helpful. I'm um, just kind of walking you through the dynamics of spiritual growth, how often... Um, a large part of that is going through difficulty and hard times, but learning to trust God's grace and his goodness to us in the midst of those difficulties. And then this last one, it's called A Praying Life. Um, at the center of our struggles is learning to pray, learning to trust God, learning to not just stop talking to him when things don't go the way we want, uh, learning to follow the example of the Apostle Paul who said he prayed for this thorn in the flesh to be removed, and the Lord said, I will be enough for you. My power will be made perfect in your weakness. So this is a really helpful book as well as we just think through what it means to grow and struggle and walk with Jesus. So those are some resources because this is a big topic. Um, I'm going to try as hard as I can to finish on time because I went way over at 9 and then I went way over again at 10.30. So we'll see how this goes. You might settle in and get ready for a long, 
long march, the scriptures. Um, sexuality is a huge topic. Our, our, uh, our culture is obsessed with it, I would say. It is an idolatry of our culture. We've made it into a false god. We've uh, thought many times in our culture that sex can save us. Any variety of it, all kinds of varieties of it, but we're obsessed with sexuality. Um, a song that I love the sound of, but I don't love the lyrics of, is a song by Hosier or Hosier or however you say his name. I don't know if he's French or where he comes from. But anyway, uh, this guy is something like Hosier. And he's got a song called Take Me to Church. I don't know if y'all have heard this song. It's a very catchy song. He's a brilliant musician, um, but it's also very offensive. Because in the song, he's basically saying that his um, illicit love affair with his lover, which he knows to be wrong, which is clear in the lyrics, is his act of worship. Um, and I think he's saying out loud what most of our culture believes secretly. Uh, we've taken uh, sexuality and we've made it into a false god. And so he's saying out loud what our culture is basically practicing. He's just putting very clear worship-type language to it. And it's a very disturbing song, but I use that as a, uh, just a representation of where our culture is. Uh, we confuse sexuality with God. And I think it makes a little bit of sense because God purposely designed sexuality to point us to him. The problem is we've reversed it. And the story is biblically that we take the gifts from our creator and we reject the creator himself and we turn the gifts from his hand into God. We begin worshiping them instead of him. And we can do that with anything in life, not just sexuality. We can do that with all kinds of things that we worship instead of worshiping Jesus. So I want us to start in John chapter 4 because Jesus connects the dots. He talks here in John chapter 4 to a sexually broken woman and he tells her that her issue is worship. Her issue is what God she's serving, what Savior she's running to, to be her Savior. So in John chapter 4, let's pick up in verse um, 5. Sorry, I'm getting where I can't read my Bible anymore. I really need to start wearing reading glasses. So he came to a town of Samaria, talking about Jesus, called Sychar, Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So Jesus was tired. He sits down by a well. Verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Let me stop there and uh, pray and ask God to help us tonight. Lord, we ask for your help. We pray that you would meet us here. We confess that we all struggle. And we confess that there's a lot of disagreement over this issue. So Lord, I pray for listening ears, for receptive hearts. Uh, and we pray for clarity, that your word would be convincing and convicting to us, uh, and that we would see that you desire our joy. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see that, that you desire our joy, that you love us more than we understand, more than we often feel, and that you would reassure us of that through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a song uh, by 21 Pilots 
that's been on the radio less uh, lately called Tearing My Heart. Y'all heard this kind of like a punk pop song, very catchy tune. Uh, it says, sometimes you've got to bleed to know that you're alive and have a soul. Sometimes you've got to bleed to know you're alive and have a soul. So this is kind of the opposite of how our culture often makes pleasure and sexuality into a God. Now we have other people, kind of existentialism, saying pain and difficulty is how you know you're really alive, almost worshiping the grit and painful parts of life. There's another famous song that came out years ago uh, by Nine Inch Nails, and then Johnny Cash redid it and really did it a lot better than Nine Inch Nails. It's a song called Hurt. I don't know if you've heard this one. Same kind of concept in this song, talking about hurting and pain helping us to know we're alive. And so a good question to ask ourselves is, well, which is it? Is, Is life ultimately about pain and discomfort, or is life ultimately about pleasure and desire? And I believe in the Bible, it's the only story we have, it's the only religion that exists that kind of makes sense of both of those extremes that we experience in life. Some of us are drawn more to one than the other. But in music and in literature, we have this idea coming back to us again and again that there's pain in life, but there's also great pleasure in life. It's not all one or the other. The song, Tear in My Heart, it says, um, sometimes it takes someone to come around to, tell you, to show you how. She's the tear in my heart. I'm alive. She's the tear in my heart. I'm on fire. She's the tear in my heart. Take me higher than I've ever been. So in the song, he's kind of combining both the difficulty and the pain of relationships. I'm sure y'all have never had pain in your relationships, but sometimes people do, right? And there's this pain and arguments or breaking up or just arguing or being angry or whatever it might be, feeling betrayed. There's pain in relationships. There's also ecstasy in relationships. When we listen to songs, we see our culture coming back again and again to relationships. We know we're made for relationship, and as I argued earlier, God actually designed human intimacy and sexuality to point us back to him. It's very clear in Ephesians 5. He just says it outright, that that's the purpose of marriage, to show us that God loves his church. That's what marriage is for. And we often flip that, and we think God kind of walked into our life and saw us loving each other and getting married and practicing romance in different ways and says, hey, that's a great analogy. I'll use that to talk to them about my love. That's not how it worked. God actually invented sexuality. God came up with it. See, God existed in Trinitarian community and intimacy and love before we did. God has existed for eternity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's always known inner Trinitarian love. And we were born out of that love because God is a God of love, because God is a God of community, because God is a God of relationship. We're born out of that, and so he came up with romance and sex and marriage and all of that. It's his plan. I think when we think through this, we recognize that maybe if it's his plan, he has something good for me in mind. Maybe he knows better than I know how to live out romance, how to live out sexuality, how to live out these things that I'm drawn to in this world. There's a guy named Matthew Vines that's written a book that Uh, argues that homosexual practice is a good thing and biblical. Uh, Within certain boundaries, I would say he's wrong and he's actually a false teacher, Um, but he's really taken the culture by storm, and a lot of people are following him because he's basically the most intelligent, clear, coherent case that's been made on the subject. He's the best arguer out there 
to try to lead people towards this idea that, no, no, the Bible, the Bible affirms it, and people in the Bible just didn't know about the enlightened sort of homosexual relationships that we have now, and all kinds of uh, arguments like that. I would highly recommend to you a resource by Tim Keller that can be found online. It's at the Gospel Coalition website. It also can be found at their church website, Redeemer.com, where he responds to Matthew Vine's book and another uh, book by a pastor named Ken Wilson. He responds to these guys, and he gives counter-arguments to show why their non-traditional interpretation is, in fact, not true. But there was a really, I think, helpful uh, little soundbite I wanted to read to you about that by, by another pastor um, that answered one of Matthew Vine's questions. And this is one of Matthew Vine's questions. He says, you accept that sexual orientation is highly resistant to attempts to change it. Do you accept that sexual orientation is highly resistant to attempts to change it? It's one of the major arguments by those that would say homosexuality should be embraced in our culture. This is the answer that this pastor gave. Yes. Yes, it certainly can be. But this is true of all sin, and this is true for all of us. And I think that's what we need to be clear on as those that love Jesus and want to follow him and want to obey what he says. We all are tempted by things that seem delightful and pleasurable and even are delightful and pleasurable in the short term that God says we shouldn't engage in. We're all drawn to these things. They're different things. We're drawn to different things. So this pastor says, yes, it certainly can be difficult to change sexual orientation, but this is true of all sin, and it's true for all of us. The Christian life is described in, in Scripture as a life of mortification. It's a fancy word for putting to death. So Paul talks in Romans 8 about us putting to death the deeds of the flesh. It says in Romans 8, 13, if you live after the flesh, you will die, but if through the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So Jesus says there's life in resisting our flesh and saying no to those things that seem immediately desirable to us, but trusting what God says anyway. There's life there. There's death in giving into our flesh. There's life in resisting it, putting it to death. This pastor goes on in his blog, and he says, it's certainly true for those seeking to put their same-sex attraction to death, but it is also true of all the rest of us. John Owen is a famous Puritan. He wrote a book called The Mortification of Sin. John Owen put it well when he said that we should not think we make any progress in godliness if we do not walk daily over the bellies of our own lusts. So that's my question for all of us. Are we willing to walk daily over the bellies of our own lusts, whatever they may be? And I would appeal to you if you struggle particularly with homosexual temptation or whatever your temptation may be. I see really in the area of sexual temptation, both the temptation to pornography and the temptation to homosexuality is two that that grip us with shame, and we often feel like we can't talk about it and other people don't understand and people don't know what it's like to be tempted towards these sin. I would, I would tell you to be a Christian is to be tempted towards sin. We're all tempted in different ways and at different times and in different seasons and stronger and lesser ways, but to be a Christian is to be tempted towards sin. And Jesus asks us to trust him, that he loves us, and to resist that temptation. So Owen says we should walk daily over the bellies of our own lust. We should make war. It's a long war. It's not like if we just pray one particular prayer, if we go to just the right Bible study, then we will magically be freed from any temptation any longer. I certainly have friends that have had uh, isolated experiences like that, right? There might be some sins in your life where the Lord just set you free and you do not, you just, it doesn't bother you anymore. But sin in general, 
every day we get up, we have to resist the temptation to sin, to walk away from Jesus. We have to continue trusting him, that he's good, and what his word says is right. I was talking with a friend the other day in the area of pornography about how uh, people, when they put uh, internet filters on their computers and on their phones, they get really frustrated that it slows down their internet. Have you ever, I don't know, any of you use those? You don't have to raise your hand. Uh, I use stuff like that. I think it's a good idea for men especially, but for anyone, if you want to uh, guard your eyes and what you see and what you come across, putting these kind of filters and things like this, protections on your computers and on your phones. Um, but it slows things down, right? It makes our life inconvenient. And I would say to be a Christian is to be inconvenienced by discipleship. To say, I'm going to put a lot of speed bumps in my life of things that slow me down because I'm going to try to follow Jesus and not just follow the culture. So that's a major thesis I have for us tonight is that all of us struggle and that all of us are going to be drawn towards different lusts. Don't pretend that your lust is different than anybody else's. Recognize that all Christians are tempted to lust after false gods. Recognize that. The first thing that I want to zero in on in this section is, uh, in John 4, the work of Jesus. Look at the work of Jesus, how he approaches someone who's sexually broken, how he goes after someone who's sexually broken in friendship and in communication and relationship. I think that's a really important thing for us to learn as the church. Sadly, many of us might have uh, become a Christian and maybe put behind our sexual brokenness when we joined the church and we started walking with Christ. Maybe we've made great strides, and we've forgotten what it's like. And what's really terrible is we can then start to think that we're better than people that continue to struggle. And Jesus here models for us that he honors this woman as made in the image of God when no one, in her, when no one else in their culture honored her, when no one else in the culture would be willing to even talk to her. I want to look again at the, the section here in John chapter 4. I already read uh, one piece of uh, information I thought was really helpful in verse 6. It says he was sitting by the well because he was weary. Um, Jesus is fully God and fully man, and that that blows our mind, and that's hard to understand. But because he's fully man, we can follow him. We can live like he lived. And he gives us an example here of being a man who was thirsty and who sat down to rest and asked someone for a drink. And so I think that's really helpful. I don't want to make too much of this, but in our relationship with people that don't believe what we believe, in our relationships with people that disagree with us over what the Bible says, in our relationships with people that are sexually broken specifically, like this woman, Jesus models just being a real person with her, right? He doesn't have to pretend that he's got it all together. He doesn't pretend that he's super holy and he never gets thirsty or tired or has to sit down, right? right? Often that's how we're, we're tempted as believers to pretend with those that don't believe that we've got everything cleaned up and we don't have any weaknesses and we don't have any needs. Jesus just sits down and he's real. He's just a person. He asks her for a drink. And he says, give me a drink. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Uh, so just kind of at three levels, uh, she's sexually broken, so... She's coming to the well in the middle of the day at a time when no one else would go to the well because most commentators would think she's in isolation from the rest of the women of the community, probably. So she's already in isolation because of her sexual brokenness. But she's also a woman, and Jews by tradition wouldn't have been talking to a woman in the middle of the day. And she's also Samaritan, which means there's racism at play. Many of the Jews felt very 
racist, uh, exclusive feelings towards Samaritans. Saw them as half-breeds and not good enough. But there's also a religious dimension here. They saw them as cult members. So Jesus is breaking like every cultural boundary here. Just befriending her. Jesus, again and again throughout the Gospels, would approach people that were sinners, and he never worried about them making him unclean. The work of Jesus was to bring the cleansing and the transformation of the Father into our lives, and not to be afraid of cooties or germs getting on him. Healing a leper, touching a woman who is bleeding, talking to a woman whose life was dominated by sexual brokenness. Jesus continually approached people that the culture told him and told others were unapproachable. So we see this outward-moving love. The work of Jesus was to bring the Father's love into this world. The work of Jesus, we know ultimately by the um, climax of all the gospel stories, was to die on the cross for our sins, was to take our sins upon himself, to make payment and atonement and propitiation for us so that the Father is pleased with us. That if we trust in what Jesus has done for us on the cross, God sees us as delightful, as whole. He loves us. He sees us as clean. So that's Jesus' ultimate work, and that's embodied relationally in how he goes out to meet people, how he's happy to talk to people. And he doesn't just, it's not just relationship, right? It's not just being affirming. Being affirming is not enough. He actually talks about real things with her as well. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying, do you give me a drink? You would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. And the well is deep. And she starts talking about Jacob and where the well came from. And it's kind of like, I think she's trying to get him off topic, you know? But Jesus keeps bringing her back to the main subject. And he says in verse 13, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And this is where it gets really good. Jesus says, Well, go call your husband and come here. Go get your husband and we'll talk about it some more. He, he knew exactly what her situation was. She said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. So here Jesus is affirming the Old Testament and uh, the core of the canon, what we would say is uh, biblical faith, right? He's saying, yeah, the truth does come from the Jews, from the Old Testament. Salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming, verse 23, and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So we see this pattern of Jesus approaching someone relationally that the world says don't approach. She's an outsider, she's dirty, she's unclean. Jesus makes friends with her. But Jesus doesn't just make friends with her. 
in the world today, we kind of have this divide where we have traditional Christians that say um, sexual sin is unclean and dirty, don't engage in it, and better just avoid those people. And then you have another extreme over here that says, hey, Jesus was always loving and friends with sinners, so just affirm them and embrace them in their sin. And, and Jesus really pulls together both sides. Jesus says, yeah, I believe in the traditional ethics of the Old Testament. Salvation is coming from the Jews. There is law. There is a right and wrong. But I'll also embrace and love those who are sinners so that I can bring them to a place of repenting of their sin. There, there is a right and wrong. There, there is a direction that God wants to live our lives in. We don't have to clean ourselves up before we come to him, but we have to let go of those sins and say, those sins can't save me. Jesus can. So it's a turning. The word repentance means to turn. Believe means to trust. So we turn from our sin that we've been worshiping, and then we trust in Jesus. And Jesus says this sexual brokenness is an issue of worship. There's a pastor named Daniel Noriega. He's quoted in the uh, Redemption book, but I love this quote. He says, we worshiped our way into this mess, and so we will worship our way out of it. If you're struggling and stuck with any particular sin, you need to worship your way out of it. Thomas Chalmers talks about the expulsive power of a new affection, and the idea is that the more you love Jesus, the more that drives out the other lusts and desires and affections and loves in our life. So if you're loving your sin more than Jesus, you need to recognize how good Jesus is, and the more you recognize how good Jesus is, and the more that will push out those other desires. Martin Luther said it this way. He said, uh, we never break the other commandments until we've already broken the first. Breaking the first commandment causes us to break the other commandments. It's, you shall have no other gods before me. And so Jesus talks about worship. He talks about coming to him to drink, to be satisfied. I have a picture here of a well. One of the things uh, that people often do when they are doing mission work in third world countries is helping people secure clean drinking water. That's where this conversation was taking place, around a nice, clean well. People need that water to survive. Jesus says, yes, we all need physical water to survive, but unless we come to him, we will be spiritually dead. But he is the spiritual water. He's the only thing that can save us from ourselves. So the work of Jesus is to bring himself to us. So I think an application of this is we should always have a posture, no matter what the sin of those around us, no matter what sin we have, no matter what sin other people have, we should always have a posture of friendliness, a posture of outreach, a posture of shaking hands and reaching out and not worrying so much about other people making us unclean, but worrying about the work of Jesus. How can we bring Jesus to them so that they can know the, the cleansing that we know? They can know the delight of the Father seeing us as holy. You see, we're not holy, we're not saved, we're not justified, we're not made right because we're never sinning, because we're never tempted. We're holy and made right and cleansed because Jesus has cleansed us. So an important scripture is Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No matter what you, you struggle with, no matter what you're tempted by, recognize that all people are tempted and all people sin. And Jesus offers himself as the solution to that. So application-wise, be friendly. See other people as made in the image of God just like you are. Value people because they're made in the image of God, not because they perfectly obey him all the time. And if you have that kind of perspective, then you can reach out to those you disagree with. You can reach out to those who are broken. But don't just stop there. The other side of the coin is if we love people, we'll challenge people. 
will say, don't continue to drink the poison. Don't continue to kill yourself with this false God that can't really save you. But consider Jesus. He's better than your sin. We need to say that to ourselves. We need to say that to those that we love. Consider Jesus. Enter into real conversation just like he did with the woman at the well. Talk about real life. Be real. And make sure you don't allow people to, again, this is a beautiful example of someone trying to change the subject. And she tries to change the subject. She tries to change the subject. And he keeps bringing it back to what is she satisfying herself in? We just sang, uh, satisfied in you. As believers, we're not swearing that we always do the right thing. We're swearing that Jesus is our only hope. That's, that's what we sing. That's what we pursue. The next thing I want us to think about is the design of the Father. So there is an actual design of the Father. We live in a postmodern world that uh, is always arguing that truth is not really knowable and that um, the people that wrote the Bible were kind of old and cranky, so we don't want to trust that. You know, there's just this kind of shifting understanding of the foundations of truth in our world. Uh, we are one of those crazy churches that actually believe the Scriptures are true, absolutely true. And we trust them, not because we always understand every verse. We trust them because Jesus died for us. Jesus proved he was trustworthy, so then when he gives us his word, we say, okay, I'll, I'll trust it, even though maybe my, my experience doubts this part or doubts that part, or I'm especially tempted here or tempted there. I'm going to trust what you say. And so when we look at Scripture, I want us to think about uh, in Genesis 1 and 2, how God created gender and marriage and reproduction and that God's original plan for sexuality was for it to be boundaried. I like to use the illustration often of fire. Fire is a lot of fun to play with, but it can get you in big trouble, right? And so if you play with fire at your house, you probably have a fire pit or a fireplace. Am I right? Uh, most of you probably don't just set a fire on the linoleum inside your house or on the uh, pergo flooring or whatever you might have on the shag carpet, right? We would put the fire in a boundaried, safe environment so that we can enjoy it. And God has created human sexuality to be a heterosexual union between a man and a woman for a lifetime in a covenant marriage. That's the biblical design. And I would just point you to Genesis 1, 26 through 28 as a place to, to understand the creation of male and female to reflect God's image. He designed gender on purpose, and I would direct you to the book Engendered, again, which is a helpful book, or the book by DeYoung on homosexuality that talks about these ideas. We also then see in chapter 2 the creation of woman out of man in God's design for fruitfulness out of that complementary, different but same relationship. So that's God's original design. That's how he created it to be. I have a picture here of the Mona Lisa, a very famous painting. A lot of people think it's very beautiful. Um, you may notice it doesn't look like it normally does. Can you all tell? Is there anything different about the painting? Um, this has been, I think the technical word for this is defaced, right? Uh, it's graffiti. It's been marked on. It's been drawn on. And so when we choose something outside of God's design for sexuality, we're defacing his artwork. And again, I'm not pointing at you, I'm pointing at us as humanity. When we venture outside of God's design for human sexuality, we're defacing the beauty of what he's designed. God is the ultimate artist. He's made something very beautiful. If you read Genesis 1 and 2, it is art. It is beauty. It is poetry. That's his creation. 
calls out for us to praise him as a perfect and wise creator. And when we go off course, we're, we're changing what he's designed. We're messing up his picture. My mom was an art teacher, and that was like the cardinal sin, right? You don't go and mess with someone else's picture, right? We were always drawing things as little kids. You don't go and mess up someone else's design. Well, God is the ultimate designer. We are the junior artists of creation. We are made to design and make art that reflects the great and wise creator. We're always doing sub-creation. We're always doing sub-art. We are to be artists. We are to be creative. We are to make beauty in this world, but we are, we're to do it according to his design. 1 Corinthians 5 and 6 helps us to understand the seriousness of this in the New Testament. Uh, I'm not even going to go to all the Old Testament passages that talk about um, veering off course sexually, but I just want to read a couple of these from uh, 1 Corinthians 5. In 1 Corinthians 5, it says, he talks about um, the clarity that we should have at the end of 1 Corinthians 5, and he says, don't judge the sexually immoral outside the church because people outside the church are just going to be pagans and be sexually immoral. This is my paraphrase, right? So he's saying, expect those that are not Christians to live immoral lives. And we should continue to embrace them and be friends with them. But he says, those that follow Jesus should obey his design. So those of us that are in the church, we shouldn't be beating each other up. We shouldn't be tearing each other apart. But we should challenge each other to be faithful and to be obedient to his design. Paul says, we don't judge people outside the church. We actually judge people inside the church. We often call that accountability. You can call that challenge. You can call that discipleship. It's part of what's happening right now. Your pastor is telling you this is God's design for you. You need to live according to his design. Don't continue to call yourself a follower of Jesus and continue openly walk the other direction from where Jesus tells you to walk. Just be honest and say, I'm I'm not a follower of Jesus. I don't believe that. And so the category that I would put Matthew Vines in and others like him is the category of false teacher where they say, I can follow Jesus and do the opposite of what he says. That's where the danger is. We'll continue to embrace friends that don't agree with us, like the example we have in John chapter 4. But don't continue to say, I'm a follower of Jesus, and then walk the opposite direction. We need to follow him. Again, that doesn't mean we're perfect. That doesn't mean we always do things right. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says it this way, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So there's clarity here where he says sexual immorality puts us outside the bounds. We also need to remember, as many people have brought up during all the debates in our culture about homosexuality, that this is a very inclusive list of sins, right? So for those of us that maybe don't struggle with homosexuality, we should look on the list and go, oh, but thieves and greedy and revilers and idolaters of any kind. We all practice idolatry of multiple kinds. It's a comprehensive list. He's saying no sin at all is allowed. No sin will inherit the kingdom of heaven. That puts us in big trouble, right? He says in verse 11, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. God has a a clear design for us. He wants us to follow his design. He wants us to follow his blueprint. None of us have followed it perfectly. 
All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God so that our only hope is to trust in Jesus and who he is. If you continue to sin and you continue to stumble, ask for help. Don't remain trapped in a world of shame where all you do is live with condemning thoughts and telling yourself how terrible you are. Again, we all sin. We all stumble. The issue is whether or not you've desired or designed your life so that you will continue to pursue that sin or are you doing what you can to get out of that? Are you struggling with it? Or you, do you not care? Where is your heart in this issue? For all of us, we're all going to sin. We're all going to be tempted in many ways. The goal is that we would entrust ourselves to Jesus when we do sin, say that was wrong. Ask a friend to pray for us. James 5 says, confess your sins one to another. Pray for each other that you may be healed. That, that's why we gather in groups. That's why we build friendships in the church. It's why we have small groups. It's why we have Celebrate Recovery so that we can actually share what we're struggling with. Say, hey, I really blew it this week. I really lost my temper with my kids. I really failed uh, with this issue. I really uh, hurt someone in this way. Whatever it may be, you confess those things. You say, I'm struggling here. Will you help me? Will you pray for me? Will you walk beside me? Will you help me brainstorm ways to put this to death? Help me to walk over the belly of my lust and of my sin. So there's four areas where where I see us really struggling as as a community. Uh, with sexuality. And these are just the four areas that I counsel people in the most. The first is porn. Um, that's the most widespread issue. You know, in the public, everybody's talking about homosexuality. Nobody seems to really worry about porn, but porn is incredibly destructive. It's destroying all kinds of lives and marriages and families. It is way off track. It's not God's design for sexuality. And I would encourage you, if you're struggling with that as a man, you need to get help. You need to recognize that it is destructive. Maybe if you're not there yet and you're wrestling with, is, that, is it really that bad, right? I'm not really hurting anyone. I would uh, just tell you two things. One is uh, you're enslaving young women in the porn industry. You're paying for their enslavement. The other thing is it's destroying you and your ability to relate to people normally, and there's all kinds of research, scientific research that would back that up. So I'd encourage you to take steps to investigate just how deadly that is, how much death and pain is growing out of the porn habit that many people struggle with and get help. Again, don't, don't live in the shame. You don't understand. You don't, you don't struggle like I do. Or I've prayed that it would just disappear. We'll, we'll talk to somebody about it. Get, get in a program. Throw away your phone. Throw away your computer. You take drastic steps. Don't just pray that God would instantly remove it, but involve other people, involve community. Get other people to pray for you. Take more steps. The other problem I see most common after that is uh, just people sleeping around, uh, just men and women, just traditional heterosexual sleeping around, right? Uh, that's really the other biggest problem we have that I see that I counsel people with, not being faithful to the marriages they're in or not being faithful to their future spouse because they're not married yet and they're sleeping around or living together. Again, that's outside of God's design for human sexuality. He wants it to be bounded in the fireplace of covenantal love of a heterosexual permanent relationship where you honor each other and build each other up and serve each other sacrificially. That's God's design. Again, I would say if you're lured towards that, if you're tempted towards that, you need to confess that by uh, bringing it into the light, talk to another person, talk to God about that. Pursue an opportunity to walk in community with other people so other people can help you do what Jesus is talking about in John 4 where he says that we should satisfy ourselves more in him and less in our sin. It's not easy. It's not easy for anyone, but uh, ask for help. The third problem I see in our church is weak 
and passive marriages. So people that are in a traditional marriage, uh, but we're just not doing it well at all, and we've kind of given up, and that's a, that's a huge problem. In Ephesians 5, Paul is very clear that marriage was designed, invented by God, as a way of preaching the gospel to the world. It's a billboard for God's love and goodness. And so if you're married, you are preaching a gospel. The question is, are you preaching a false gospel of bitterness and disconnectedness and not caring and stoicism? Or are you preaching a gospel of respect and sacrificial love like Ephesians chapter 5 describes? So that's the question. Again, the, the way out is not just living in secret shame. The way out is bringing it into the light, talking to someone, saying, I struggle. Even though, again, in our own minds, we think nobody understands. No one else struggles. In Hebrews, we're told that we have this incredibly sympathetic high priest who was tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. So first of all, Jesus understands what it means to struggle with sin to a way that we don't fully understand, right? Because we give in to sin and he never did. So obviously there's a difference there. But the scriptures assure us that he's sympathetic and he understands. But more than that, every Christian in this room understands your sin and your struggle. Because we all sin and we all struggle. So you need to find a buddy, a partner to share with, to encourage you. The fourth uh, problem I see is really the kind of the lowest down the list is, is homosexuality. And again, what I see most widely in culture is that those who struggle with homosexual temptation have uh, told themselves, and I believe the culture has reinforced that, that they have a unique temptation that's different than anyone else, that puts them in a separate category, and that nobody else understands. And you don't understand because I continue to be tempted, people will say. And, and, and what I would say is if you struggle with homosexual temptation, please don't disrespect the temptation of your brothers and sisters. Please don't be so prideful that you think you have this heroic struggle that no one else struggles with. Granted, there are unique, nuanced differences from one sin to another sin. At the micro level, there are differences. But we all struggle. We all struggle. We all make stupid choices. We're all tempted towards things that seem good, but part of us knows it's not good, but we want it anyway, and there's short-term pleasure, but we know there's long-term death in that. I just know that we all struggle. All people struggle. So don't deceive yourself and tell yourself that, that you're different than everybody else. That's part of the problem. I think it exacerbates the isolation that you, you, you feel and pushes you then to pursue homosexual relationships because you've isolated yourself from other relationships. Pursue spiritual friendships. Pursue discipleship. Pursue healthy relationships in the body of Christ. Don't deify and idolize sexuality. Did y'all know that we can have intimate, deep, healthy relationships without sex? Did, did y'all know that? It is possible. The Bible paints a picture of that. It can happen. So don't sell it short. Realize that we live in a completely over-sexualized world that has made a God out of sexuality. The last thing I want us to think through is the comfort of the Spirit. The comfort of the Spirit... Um, the Spirit has this unique role of revealing Jesus and what He does for us on the cross and then assuring us of our adoption through what Jesus did for us on the cross. Assuring us that we're children of God. You see, when we struggle with sin and then we struggle with it again, we begin to doubt that God really loves us anymore. We begin to doubt that the gospel is strong enough to pay for our sins and that 
the adoption of God is really permanent. And the Spirit comforts us. Jesus said in John chapter 14, uh, I'm going away. He was about to leave his disciples, but he said, I'm not leaving you as orphans. I'm sending the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. He's going to be with you so you know you're not an orphan. So again, if in your mind, in your struggle with temptation, you are tempted towards the life of an orphan, thinking you're on your own, ask the Holy Spirit to remind you, to encourage you that he's with you. Uh, In Romans chapter 8, it says it this way, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons. Ladies, that goes for you too. We're all firstborn sons through Christ. So you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And here's the part I always want to leave off, but it's there, so I need to read it. Um, Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So to follow him means adoption. It means we belong to him. He loves us. He grabbed hold of you, not because of anything you did, not because you were uh, tempted in only certain ways or not tempted in the ways he really didn't like. We're all tempted. We've all sinned, and he comes after us, and he grabs hold of us, and he says, I want you to be in my family. I'm going to adopt you as my child. I'm going to pick you up, and I'm going to take you home. And he does that for us through Christ, dying on the cross for our sins, taking them away, giving us his righteousness. So the Father is pleased with us. I have a picture of a father here delighting in his uh, newborn child. So when you think about a father delighting in you, you either have good memories or bad memories or no memories. And what I want you to understand is if you're lacking those memories or maybe you have bad memories of a father that didn't delight in you but gave you other messages, the God of the Bible through Christ delights in you. And the Holy Spirit's job is to comfort you with that, to remind you of that. That's what the Spirit gives us. You've received the Spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And so 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 12 is a section of Scripture that covers a lot of the same ground that other books in the New Testament cover. It's just one more look at the idea of faithfulness, sexual purity, And in 1 Thessalonians 4, we see this idea of calling. So it's on page 987 in the Black Bibles. And he says this, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. So he's saying, we gave you instructions about how to live your life. And we're asking you to keep keep living your life that way. Keep obeying what God has asked of you. Verse 2, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. What that means is it's God's will that you would be more and more set aside. Sanctification is the same root in Greek of the word holy. And so to be holy or to be made a saint or to be sanctified is to be set apart. So that's uh, what we might think about, especially in today's environment and today's culture is uh, the weirdness of following Jesus. So God's desire is for you to be weird in a good way, him setting you apart, saying you're not going to be like everybody else. You're going to be different. You're going to know that I love you, and you're going to follow what I say. Sanctification, being set apart, that you abstain 
from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles, the nations who don't know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand, and we solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. So there's a calling on our life. He calls us to be sexually pure, not like everybody else. I think one of the big freakouts that the church is going through right now is, oh no, our culture no longer agrees with us on the standards of sexuality. And I just want to break it to you. Our culture never agreed with us on our standards of sexuality. I would argue it's gotten much worse. And honestly, as a dad and as a future granddad, that is scary to me. And I believe there will be devastation. There will be more brokenness before things get better. But the brokenness has always been there. So should we be worried? Should we pray? Yes, but the culture's never really been on our side. Historically, Christians have been those that are being sanctified, set apart, adopted out of a broken world, and God pulling us to himself and calling us to live life in a new way based on his sovereign grace towards us, his goodness in adopting us and loving us, not based on anything that we've done. Your calling is to be pure. The truth about sexuality is that God has designed us to live in a certain way. None of us have done it perfectly. All of us are repenters, right? None of us have lived perfectly. All of us are on the road of repentance, turning from our sin and trusting in Jesus, that he's enough, that he will satisfy us. Let me pray for us and we'll respond together in communion. God, we thank you that you love us and that you loved us so much you gave us Jesus. We thank you that he died for our sins, but we thank you even more than that, that he rose from the dead, promising us that this life will not just be a continued battle with death, but that we have hope. We have hope of resurrection. We have hope of ultimate joy found in your presence. So God, I pray that you would give us a taste of that joy now. Help us to be reassured of your kindness to us by your Holy Spirit and help us to persevere in walking over the bellies of our lusts. We pray that you'd help us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.